we tell stories that engage, inspire, and have a lasting impact? How do we turn thoughts and ideas into effective and authentic storytelling? How can we use stories to make a difference in our work, lives, and communities? I'm your host, Camille DePutter, and together we'll explore what it means to tell stories with heart. Welcome to the Storytelling with Heart podcast. I'm Camille DePutter, and with me today is John Berardi, the co-founder of Precision Nutrition, the author of the book Changemaker, Turn Your Passion for Health and Fitness into a Powerful Purpose and a Wildly Successful Career. Now, if you work in the health and fitness industry, you likely know John Berardi, or as I call him, JB. He is highly respected and known for his thought leadership in the areas of nutrition coaching and behavior change. JB built a career, a successful business, and a well-regarded name for himself, largely by writing and communicating his ideas. Over the years, we've collaborated on many written pieces and projects together, and I'm delighted to have him here today. JB, welcome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Cam. I appreciate you having me on the show. Thanks. I'm so excited to talk to you because we have chatted about many things over the years, um, many different topics, and we have worked together on quite a bit of what I would call thought leadership, um, you know, ideas thoughts, kind of things that you wanted to get out into the world. And I would love to explore a bit of that with you today and kind of what that adventure has looked like. Um, But if it's okay with you, before we kind of get into stuff that's maybe more um, career oriented, I'm curious about kind of where it all began for you. And starting with what you were like as a kid, because you have spent a career thinking, sharing ideas, you know, reflecting on topics and exploring them kind of in the public. Were you always a curious thinker, a reflective kind of person? What were you like way back when? Yeah, um, cool. Happy to answer that in a question in a second. Do you, I have a question first. Do you, do you hear my dog going nuts in the background? No. Oh, okay, great. Good. Okay, as long as you're not picking her up, then uh, then, uh, then we're good. Um, uh, for the listeners, we've got uh, we've got a pup, and we just moved into a new space, and so she's anxious about all the changes. So uh, she makes a little noise from time to time. I mean, I have a a Bengal cat Iggy who already interrupted one of my podcasts, and I'm sure will do <laughs> so again. So no worries here. Yeah, I love when the cats get up on the desk and just rub against the microphone. That's my favorite part. Of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So no, I, as a kid, I was I was uh, born preemie, and um, for those um, who've uh, checked out the work of, I believe her name is Susan Kane uh, on introverts, uh, they know there's a high correlation between being born preemie and having introversion traits. Um, and, uh, you know, I know a lot of people think of introversion, extroversion as more social domains, but, uh, as Susan talks about in her book, it's, it has a lot to do with generally how we respond to stimulation. So it's kind of like a, a nervous system thing. So growing up, I was, I liked quiet time and I liked not being around crowds and I liked being by myself. 
And I never understood why and until I became an adult and started learning more about this stuff. Um, but that just translated naturally and nicely for me to stay home, read books, uh, watch movies, and be more of an observer of the world than maybe even when I was young, a participant. And um, so that led me to want to read. And as a lot of readers probably do, um, they eventually want to write. And um, so that was kind of growing up, I spent just a lot of time in books and in mm -hmm. my room. And uh, when I got to be a teenager, it was reading, it was music. Uh, I would never buy an album uh, without pouring over the lyrics and figuring out what the artists were trying to say. Um, <laughs> so it was, I just like fell in love with um, written communication, really. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, you know, whatever, it's not for everyone. I, I always feel like sometimes our greatest superpowers can also be our greatest kryptonite, you know, and vice versa. So for better or worse, right? I was shy, I was introverted, that made some circumstances difficult, but it made this wonderful refuge that I found mm -hmm. in books and music and lyrics and communication in this way. So that's what I was up to as a kid. Uh, I was also, because I was born preemie, I was kind of small and weak, so I wasn't out doing sports and things like that at the time. Uh, so that's that's kind of where people like me ended up, and just with a face in books. And what, what was the writing part of that that kind of journey? Like, So did you write a, as a kid? Did you keep a, a journal? When did you start writing? What did that look like? Yeah, I was so, um, I think because I was so shy, um, that I didn't actually like to share any of my thoughts with others, you know, mm -hmm. and I do a lot of youth coaching now. And so I see that in some of our athletes where they uh, won't make a play on the soccer field or uh, the football field or whatever, because they feel like it would draw attention to them and they're trying to hide from that. Um, and so that was me for sure. I, I see myself in them. And um, so, yeah, I wasn't doing much writing for fear that people would see it. But mm -hmm. when I got to, like, I, I had all these stories in my head, though. And so um, when I got to high school, I had a uh, sophomore year uh, English professor who was incredible, just an amazing person. And uh, he just yanked it all out of me, <laughs> you know, mm. he just pushed me so hard to start doing some writing. And I was like, Oh, okay. Okay. I'll do it. And then, um, he encouraged it and helped me get better at it. And then that when I, that's when I was really, um, like more formally interested in literature mm. and writing and all those kinds of things. So it was a really slow cooking process. And then from that point on, uh, I got so much positive praise about the things that I would write that um, I just wanted to do more of it. And uh, when I got to university, I really prided myself on my essays and my papers. Um, and then that was, you know, right around that time when I discovered weight training and, um, you know, nutrition for performance and things like that. And so I read all those magazines. And so I would like, you know, I was a closeted author of uh, <laughs> nutrition and exercise uh, articles because I would write articles for these magazines in my room. You know what I mean? And so I was like, <laughs> oh, somehow I thought one day I'll do this. And for now I'm practicing, 
you know, and I don't even know if it was that explicit because I don't remember sitting down saying, I'm going to practice for when I'm a fitness and nutrition author. Mm -hmm. I just remember going like, Hey, I'm learning all this stuff. I'm going to write about it. And that helped me learn it more. And then I was like, oh, when I could probably craft it into article form, that would be interesting. And I never really shared them with anyone, but the big periodical at the time was called Muscle Media 2000. So uh, Bill Phillips, who most people have heard of, started EAS and most probably people know of him from Body for Life fame, but um, he ran Muscle Media 2000. And that was like the hardcore weightlifting, bodybuilding, sports supplement journal of the time and that was so i i was in my mind writing for muscle media 2000 uh in my room at my parents house uh in high school um creating articles amazing i love that that i i haven't i don't think we've talked about this before so it's kind of a, a new window in, into that journey and i relate a lot to it at what point did you did you then go from you know writing in the closet so to speak to actually publishing your your work do you remember kind of what the first thing was yeah it was i do remember um so uh these these lives started to touch each other when i went to university and you know again you have to set this at a particular time and place which was essentially pre-internet um so the only exposure you got to whatever niche information you enjoyed at the time for me it was you know strength and fitness and nutrition and that kind of stuff um for other people could have been a host of subjects on you know, music or various hobbies um and all of a sudden you know i go to university and there's a computer lab right no one has a personal computer so you go to a computer lab and the information is limited but you all of a sudden can be in these uh, chat groups, what people would call them now, uh, mm -hmm. list serves is, is how they mm -hmm. were back then, where you can meet other people who are interested in what you're interested in. And then there were like these like white papers on all kinds of things mm -hmm. floating around the internet, right? Um, and so you're like, oh, wow, I'm connecting with like community of people into the things I'm into. And then there's these white papers where people are just writing about the stuff they're learning. So I had access to this like university library um, I have access to this computer. There weren't a lot of online like research journals or whatever. So you still had to go to the, you know, stacks at the library and, and pull up mm -hmm. the print journals. Um, but that's when I started just reading. Like I had one day a week, every Thursday, where I just go and read um, research about the things I was most interested in. And then I would just write about it. And then I would put them up on listservs and I would, you know, that, that was my early writing about this stuff. And I, you know, my mission at the time and what I was really interested in was this idea of like, can I read this research stuff that's very hard to comprehend, even for me at the time, but I'm getting training in how to, and like write about it so anyone, like myself mm. in high school a few years ago, could read this and understand it and interpret it and uh, do something with it. You know, like, oh, this mm -hmm. is a study in mice where they um, put them on a little mouse treadmill and they run them to exhaustion or whatever. Um, and then they give them a nutritional ingredient or do a, you know, physiological intervention. Okay, cool. How could this possibly apply to a person who does what I do in the gym? 
you know, who mm-hmm. is going to go for an interval run on the treadmill or is going to go lift some weights or whatever. And so that was kind of how I approached it. I was like, how can I read this stuff and say, oh, I wonder if we tried this in a human in this context, what would happen sort of a thing. So I started writing those kinds of things. And then those sort of turned into my papers at school. So I wasn't just doing like a literature review. I was writing about the research and then trying to take an applied approach to it. And my profs all always thought it was pretty cool, generally, that I was doing that <laughs> approach with my papers. Not everyone loved it. Um, and then uh, then there was a publication at the time uh, called TMAG. So it, t- it stood for Testosterone Magazine. Mm-hmm. And it was probably the first online, widely read, you know, whatever you want to call it, periodical journal magazine for our space. Mm-hmm. And um, so they came out and I guess it was probably 1997, 1998. And uh, right, I was still on dial up. So you had to dial into it or whatever. And I don't even know how I heard about it for the first time. I wish I could find in my memory banks how the, like the first exposure that was, because right. that's been like the most formative formative relationship of my entire career because they ended up publishing hundreds of articles of mine over the years and sort of gave me the springboard for my future career. Um, But um, I wasn't quite ready to write for them yet. Um, Most of the people had advanced degrees and I was still a grad student or whatever. Um, And this other publication came up right around the same time. and two of my friends, both who went on to become mentors of mine, one of them became my master's mentor, uh, started this thing and uh, called Virtual Muscle. And they were like doing the same thing that TMAG was doing, but on a smaller scale. It was mm-hmm. just a little bit more like with friends, right? Mm-hmm. So that was my so that was my, my my first thing I published was with them. And then the folks at TMAG had read it, liked it, and asked me if I'd like to do some articles for them. And so the first thing that I did with TMAG, which I consider like my first real big publication, I got money for it and everything, Uh um, was I went to a conference in Indianapolis, the ACSM, American College of Sports Medicine Annual Conference, and I reported on it. So I talked about all the interesting things that people were doing there and the research and new tools and stuff. Uh, And I wrote this article and they like paid me enough for my whole trip plus bonus money, you know what I mean? Uh, plus, like, yeah. Profit. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I was like, this is great. Like, and so, you know, little did I know everything I'd done prior, you know, writing in my room mm-hmm. and stuff in university would coalesce into this thing. You know, nowadays, like people do this, right? Like people know mm-hmm. that, Hey, I can, I'm going to get a PhD. I could do this. Like I can do my academic work and I can translate it into practical applied stuff. And there's people who would publish it and pay for it. And I can maybe nowadays, if you're entrepreneurial, make a business around it. Mm-hmm. But back then I had never seen anything like that. And it just felt like I was, um, I had like the cheat code for life. I was like, I'm actually like earning a degree over here. Uh, and I'm sitting in rooms with all these poor students, you know, but these people over here that like mm-hmm. no one knows about, except for people, in my little niche, like like love and celebrate what I'm doing Mm -hmm. and pay me for it. Like this is full on ridiculous. And I'm telling no one about it. Um, I got to keep this to myself before someone makes it go away. You know, it's funny because you're right. Things have changed and and there's maybe a more um, obvious connection there, but I also feel like in some ways, this is what my, my whole business is about is trying to help 
people see and recognize that Mm -hmm. that thing that they are thinking about learning an expert in, um, interested in, involved in, can also translate to, um, to written work that makes a difference. That that mm-hmm. stuff that sort of lives within you and might even seem kind of normal to you or your daily life to you or just the thing that you're profoundly interested in can also be relevant and useful for other people, whether that's mm-hmm. through writing for somebody else, writing for yourself, you know, communicating those ideas in in other formats or other forums. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's again, it was, it was a real revelation to me. And honestly, I, I felt this way through my whole career. Like it, as precision nutrition grew, I was like, Shh, uh, don't tell anyone this is not supposed to be happening. You know, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm just like educating on the things and writing about the things and reporting on the things and interviewing people about the things I'm personally interested in. And now all of a sudden there's like a million people on our newsletter list listening to that, you know, like mm-hmm. going, Oh yeah, yeah, tell me more. Um, and then eventually selling the company, you know, these, these guys in suits show up and they're, you know, wanting to pay hundreds of million dollars for this company that I'm like, Shh, don't tell anyone, but this is just me doing what I <laughs> have no choice, but to do, you know, I'm <laughs> um, just chasing my own interests. And it's like, this whole thing is built on this guy's strange set of hobbies um and so i really like you know luck is a maybe not the most appropriate word choice but that's how i feel all the time like this mm-hmm. is so lucky that whatever i was interested in and uh, became good at was like others were interested in and they wanted to pay for it and then people wanted to pay for the business that people paid for the thing i was interested in from you know mm-hmm. what i mean so it's like mm-hmm. this is so nuts to me so how did you then go from those like publishing a bit on other people's sites and doing your academic work to then saying, okay, I'm going to start my own thing. I'm going to start publishing mm-hmm. on my own platform and eventually building a business around it. Yeah, that was, uh, that was mostly Phil Caravaggio's fault. Who's my longtime <laughs> friend and business partner. I had been writing on other platforms. Um, and, uh, Phil had been reading my work and there was a big event coming up in Toronto, which is close to where I was living. I was living in London, Ontario. So it was a couple hours up the road and he lived in Toronto and um, he just sent me a really nice note uh, saying, Hey, I'm a big fan of your work. I'm going to be at this event. I'd love to meet up. I come to London all the time. Some of my good friends from high school uh, go to school at Western university, which is where I was at. Um, so I, I just love to say hi at the event. So he came up, said hi. We kept in touch. He came to London a few times to visit. And uh, he was just like, hey, I build websites. You know, he was a mm-hmm. systems design engineering student and he was interning and working summers at IBM. And uh, he was just like, this is the future here. Like putting people like you out in front and center, uh, doing the education that you do, having a personal website. Um, being able to control the, you know, the products you sell, the people you talk to, the email list that you grow. Um, I think you should have this, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was skeptical. I honestly, there were all these heroes that I had in the fitness, nutrition, sports space, and not a single one of them had a website, Mm -hmm. you know? So nowadays you're like, of course, but back then it was like, 
I don't know, man. Like, I was like, what's this yeah. guy's angle? Like, uh, is he a visionary or is he just like trying to get me to pay him for something that's not useful or valuable and no one's going to care about? Um, and so he de-risked it and he was like, listen, I'll help you do this for free. Um, cause it's fun and I'll build my skills along the way mm-hmm. and you know, whatever, if it doesn't work out, that's okay. If it does, we'll figure out how to share the money. Um, or I'll just, you know, this will be my portfolio piece and then mm-hmm. we'll, and then I'll go do other stuff with people who can't afford to pay. So I was like, all right, cool. So he started coming down like on Friday after classes ended for him and mine were ended and we would work on like Friday and Saturday. Uh, he'd stay over. We set up like a makeshift sort of web design studio in, in my basement of the house I was renting at the time. And um, I had a little money from the articles I was writing. I was on a retainer. So I, I had to produce two articles a month and I got a certain amount of money per month for that. Um, so I had a bit of cash that we could invest in this. And that's and that's what we started doing, you know, and, and the idea was let's just, you know, we weren't really sure, but it was like, JB, you're writing all these articles. What if you got permission from the people that you were writing for to just reprint them on your own site? Mm-hmm. And at the time, again, it was totally fine. You know, uh, the web thing, copyright, I mean, or copyright rules even, <laughs> a thing today, but nevertheless, back then, it, you know, so I just asked like, Hey, uh, here's the article that, you know, whatever, would it be okay if I put it on my own site? And mm-hmm. again, no one else thought having your own site was a thing. They thought it was kind of silly. And and many of them told me that, well, why wouldn't you put it over there? No one's going to come to that. Like no mm-hmm. one has a website. And I was like, oh, yeah, I don't know, whatever. It's, it'll just be a nice archive of everything that I've written, you know, and we'll just mm-hmm. keep it there as well. Cause I write for other people too, you know, and people all said, mm-hmm. yes. And then that's what we started doing. And then we started putting original content there, stuff that maybe didn't fit perfectly on testosterone magazine or men's health or whatever else, but things that we were thinking about and learning about and curious about. Um, and then we put a little thing like, would you like to sign up for our newsletter and get updates and discounts and whatever? And that's sort of how it took off. Yeah, it's um interesting too. You mentioned the word archive. It sounds like from from the beginning, even as you were maybe writing almost like secretly for yourself, you had this inclination to to kind of keep keep your work or keep track of of mm-hmm. your work in some way. And I I always had the same inclination. I mean, I still have uh, my diaries from mm-hmm. all my many years. And when I was a teenager, I was very inspired by you know diarist a nice nin and mm-hmm. this kind of this idea of keeping archives. And I'm, I think that's also a one now I think of it as ha- having a body of work mm-hmm. as being able to put together pieces in your own, maybe call it a portfolio, but I think of it as a body of work. Maybe mm-hmm. it's the, the books like physical books on your shelf, or maybe it's a, a blog or a central place where all of your ideas and your writing is kept. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I understand and appreciate some of the benefits to something that's more transient, like, you know, on, on social media and people making stories and things that are not around for very long. What concerns me about it often is that I see people putting up, putting up stuff where I'm like, if you build this out, if you keep it, it preserve it, uh, collect it, and have a place for it, a home for it, it can actually be part of your body of work as opposed mm-hmm. to something that 
just kind of disappears. Um, mm-hmm. Was that just a passing thought for you, this kind of archive notion, or do, do you do you relate to that idea of having a, a body of work of some kind? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And also the idea of archiving and collecting and uh, as as uh, you were talking there and saying you share some of this kind of impulse uh, yesterday. Um, so myself and our kids all run uh, track and we do sprint competitions and things like that. And uh, so our children have now done two track meets this summer and all those data are either not ever available again or they're somewhere buried on a web page somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I'm going to start a spreadsheet. So, so I have this spreadsheet <laughs> with the dates and the events they ran and their times. And I have mine um, because I, uh, a few years back, I was competing really seriously in master's events. And then I took a break when we had our fourth child. And now I'm starting up again with the kids who so are training and competing together. But this is an impulse of mine. I'm like, this is right. Let's put this somewhere. You know, mm-hmm. so then I'll have their time. So I'll have great in our eight year olds uh, first ever 100 meter time, you know, and then if he continues in track and gets faster and is, you know, one day competitive in high school or whatever it is, mm-hmm. we'll be able to see where he started. You know, this is mm-hmm. just the thing like um, and uh, yeah, also the idea of like, I don't know, having some kind of ownership. I don't I'm not sure if that's mm-hmm. the right word either. Um but of my work, you know, mm-hmm. I was like one of the, one of the most annoying things that's happened to date in my career. And it's pretty good if this is one of the most annoying, but there was a website called, uh, and it's still there bodybuilding.com. And they're like a big supplement distributor and they have tons of content. They're essentially like a content farm at this point. Um, and for those who don't know what that is, it's where you pay people really cheaply to just churn out keyword related content you know, short 200 word article on highly topical keyword thingy that'll get you search engine traffic uh, and get your site highly ranked on the search engines. Um, But they uh, once upon a time asked me if they could borrow, use an article that I had written on TMAG. And um, I said, yes. And then a few months later, the... Uh, editor-in-chief of TMAG, TC Loma, um, emailed me really mad. And he was like, dude, what's going on here? And I was like, what do you mean what's going on here? He's like, every one of your articles from TMAG, which I paid for, is on bodybuilding.com. Are you selling these articles to someone else after? I'm like, dude, I had no idea. So they had just gone and taken every every one of my articles from TMAG and published it for free without paying me anything. on their website and i was just so like for whatever like i had a conversation with them about it right Mm -hmm. and they were like you should be excited by this you know like we are distributing your work it's having a second life to a big huge audience Uh, we're getting you eyeballs and traffic and name recognition and brand recognition and you're mad about it and um it was, first of all, it was an interesting ins- insight and, you know, exercise in perspective uh, because mm-hmm. there were a couple of them here, you know, mm-hmm. um, but for whatever reason, I just like emotionally felt like hey, this isn't right. This is like, this is my stuff. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. And 
Like you're, you're just do, you're just choosing to do with it as you will. That's not cool. So I always felt even if with sold articles, like, Hey, there's some ownership there. That, uh, I want to protect my own reputation. I want to, I want to at least say where th- things are going, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that all speaks to this idea of body of work. It's, it's the stuff that I said that I worked on. I mean, I put a ton of work into all that content, you know, it, mm-hmm. and I, I think this speaks to the other thing you were hinting at, you know, nowadays I see people and you and I talked about this recently for another conversation, but, um, you know, with the drive to create social media content, um, just creating like, I don't know, content junk food, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's like little snacks of, uh, low nutrient dense, you know, high sugar information, which is, is fine is this isn't even like a big indictment because I think that's mm-hmm. ultimately how a lot of, con- what a lot of consumers want from social media, mm-hmm. uh, for better or worse, most often for worse, right. They're just like, I see them, they're on a train or <laughs> you know, waiting at a red light or waiting at an appointment, just like looking for a little, uh, whatever intellectual, mm-hmm. emotional snack, right? Like, you know, there it's it's a sip off of a you know Starbucks frappuccino that they're getting the social media equivalent of that. Um, and the two problems with that are one, I think when you spend a lot of your time you know making junk food, uh, you get in the habit of making junk food and 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 you forget or never learn how to make a satisfying meal. Um, and then the uh, the second thing is it yeah it's how does that fit into a body of work that you can be proud of, you know, mm-hmm. is, is that next question, right? Um, the, the content I was writing, I mean, I, I was paid really well. That, so this was like two, let's say 2000. So it's 22 years ago. I was getting like 2,500 bucks a month to do two feature length articles. Mm-hmm. Um, that's still good money today. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but I mean, I, worked on those you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like these weren't throwaways i mean these had a hundred scientific references and you know they were four thousand words and um so i I, yeah i felt some ownership over them i took Mm -hmm. a lot of pride and put a lot of work and time into them and and i think that's also part of why i built some of the reputation that i did Mm -hmm. like other people at this point were starting to throw their hat in the ring to create content and the content they create were creating wasn't particularly intriguing. It wasn't particularly novel. It wasn't particularly research-based. It felt like regurgitation of currently accepted ideas. You uh-huh. know, they heard it from someone else, heard a couple things from someone else's and put them together. Um, I, the stuff I was doing, I was like, you know, it was 10 X the effort. Yeah. Um, and, um, I think that's, that's why I was paid well, but I think it's also why I developed the following people are like, Oh, this isn't the same stuff I've heard. This is, um, provocative. It's intriguing. It's current. It's whatever cutting edge. Um, and I think that's part of the difference that, um, helped me build an audience. Yeah, that that's an excellent point. And something I'd like to dig into even a little bit more. I mean, First of all, I love how you put it in regards to social media, like uh, sort of as junk food, because it's like, you know, from the nutrition coaching perspective, we're not going to say don't eat junk food. 
but Mm -hmm. hopefully it's not, you know, all you're eating. Right. And so that kind of, to me anyway, social media can be absolutely a part of your writing, a part of your marketing, a part of your, your branding and and how you're putting yourself out there and, and communicating with people and connecting with people. But if that's all you're doing, you, to me, are missing a big opportunity, particularly if the idea of being a thought leader, of having a lasting reputation and making it an impact in an industry or, you know, something that, that lasts, then you need to, that, that should not be your only or your primary source of communicating Mm-hmm. For that very reason that it's kind of like the, you know, those little like snacks, the, the kind of the junk food that there's got to be more to it. And part, and then the other part of that equation then, which you were sharing with us is like, that takes work. And mm-hmm. this is something, you know, I, I don't know, maybe I should write more about or talk more about because I, I really try to encourage people to believe in the fact that they can do this. I want more people uh, who have legitimately good ideas and valuable stuff inside their brains to communicate it. But let's be honest, this takes work. And so behind the scenes and, you know, precision nutrition over the years, you know, you, you were kind of recalling back to the early 2000s. So, you know, we're looking at like 20 years here of content, a blog, if if you want to call mm-hmm. it that, of, not your typical blog, not a typical, hey, here's some ideas, not even typical content marketing and like, hey, here's, you know, a quick story that might, you know, get some SEO traffic, but of articles that a group of people, you and me included, would fight over, Mm -hmm. research, challenge, question, edit, re-edit, and so on. And that there would actually be quite a bit of time and resources, but also like brain energy mm-hmm. going yeah. into. Yeah, totally. And and for those listening, I mean, you know, Cam and I have worked on countless articles and content together over the years. And yeah, it was in the early days, it was uh, Phil and I. So I would write something and then Phil and I would battle it out to make it better, you know, and then eventually there was a team that would do that. And um now, I don't want anyone to think that's an onerous thing. Like, find someone smart who's into what you're into, and I'm sure they'll read your stuff for free and tell you how to make it better if you ask the right questions of mm-hmm. them, right? Um, one question that I love is uh, bring this article to some people in your niche, in your space, fans uh, of yours, and and even some haters of yours. I always like... I like getting the same kind of feedback from people who don't like me, but aren't petty and vitriolic. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) you know, some people will just be like, you suck. And I'm going to tell you a hundred ways why you suck here. I I don't need that. Um, But I want people who maybe are skeptical, like not Cinco fans Mm -hmm. uh, or even fans. I want some people who are like legitimately going to have a bit of a chip on their shoulder when they read the thing so that then they, that I can hear what they think too, because not mm-hmm. everyone's a fan. Um, but, you know, so again, you don't need a paid team around you and, you know, a bunch right. of professional writers. You need someone to read your stuff and help you make it better. And the question is, you know, zero to 10, how do you rate this? And then whatever they tell you, let's say six or seven, no one's rarely going to tell you 10. You just say, how do I get it to a 10? 
you know, and that's mm-hmm. the simplest way to ask. And, uh, you know, you, you talked about some of the things you put into it, you know, this intellectual juice that you got to, that you got to invest, but there's just this level of care. And the way I, I often think about it, and I'll give you a recent example is like, how can I take this thing that someone showed me or, or that I've created myself and like, plus one it, you know, like this, this is the best, like, even when you've done the best you can do, then you sit back and you give it a day and you say, all right, how do I plus one this? How do I plus 10 this, you know, mm-hmm. recent example. So some of the uh, folks at PN wanted to put together uh, a webinar, whatever conversation with Tim Jones, who's the current CEO and I about the future of the health and fitness uh, space. And, um, you know, they were talking about like why they want to do it and how, and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, okay, cool. Now I, I, took a day, thought about it. it. Their proposal was fine, you know, good even. Um, but I was like, I'm kind of retired now. I don't do this anymore just to do this. Like if I do something like this, it one has to be great, not just good. And two, it has to reach a lot of people. And their, their original intention was just to um, give it to the latest crop of signups for uh, precision nutrition's health coaching certification. So this is a few hundred people, you know? And um, I was just like that. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to show up and do something and, and actually put the effort that's required to make something great into a thing that only a hundred people are going to see, you know, and this even harkens back to that story of my youth and that we talked about earlier. Um, part of the thing like journaling, I, I have thought long about why I never journaled um, or never seriously journal. You know, like I I see how much you talk about it in your newsletters, Cam, and how uh, important it's been to your growth and development and how many people that, you know, your journaling prompts have helped through your newsletter. And like this little part of me, it, that part's real quiet now, but feels like guilty that I've never done it. You know, like <laughs> I, I've never done this thing that everyone, or at least a large percentage of writers that I know, talk about doing and, and how valuable it's been for them. And I um, like don't have a really great persuasive argument for why, but I think it has to do with this one thing and there's, it's probably multifactorial, but um, I don't like creating stuff that um, I can't obsess over and make great That's part A and part B is and then I want the largest megaphone to share my stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. I am never comfortable with just a few people seeing my stuff, mm-hmm. you know, I, and, and maybe there's some like, you know, uh, unhealthy grandiosity there or whatever, but it was just like, uh, who cares? I know who I am now. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? It's like, you want me to do something or I want to do something. I'm going to obsess over it and make it f- as great as I can. Then I'm going to get smart people around me to make it even greater. We're going to plus one it, plus 10 it. And then once it's done, because we've labored so, I'm going to make sure everyone sees it, you mm-hmm. know, like mm-hmm. that. I want the biggest megaphone. And uh, I'm I'm aware enough to know that I don't want the megaphone when something's not good or ready. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. don't just give me a meg, you know, the Donald Trump megaphone, or I'm just going to get up there and shout stupid things into the void. But like, I'm going to, I'm going to do what it takes to make it good. So you better give me the big megaphone so I can share it, you know? <laughs> um, 
And so I, that's, I, I love that sort of, um, you know, that like the thing that I'm going to obsess over. And for me, I, I've, I have sometimes conceptualized this as, are you in the first 10% or the last? Because mm-hmm. when people are just starting out, I also, I almost want to encourage them kind of in the reverse way, because yeah. I feel there's so much hesitancy, perfectionism, fear mm-hmm. of starting to publish. And that, you know, that's a great tip that you gave of getting, you know, even just one other person to read it. This is partly why I really encourage people to publish, particularly through an email newsletter, some somewhere where you have accountability. It's not just mm. like thrown up on your blog. It's going out to people who have signed up, who will open it, who will look at it, and you're going to hear back from them. And so there's some kind of accountability there. But mm. if you're just starting out in, in this respect, I I spend actually a fair bit of time trying to say to people like, this does not have to be perfect. It never will be. This is an evolving process Mm -hmm. always. And you have to be, you kind of have to learn those instincts too, of when something is done enough because writing is never done. It Mm -hmm. it can't be. Um, Ideas are always evolving and there are infinite combinations of words you could use and edits you could make. So you kind of need to know and, and sort of develop instincts for done enough and if you're not, if you're just like we were maybe back in, uh, like when we were kids, you know, mm-hmm. writing, <laughs> writing ourselves in our own little rooms, you're not going to get anywhere. So you've got to be able to put it out. But I, by the same token, th- it is worth investing. I think this is kind of the point that you're making that I want to emphasize. It is worth investing that time and it can be a joyful process in obsessing over some ideas and really going into them and really trying to, like you say, one up or 10 up and make it better mm-hmm. um, enough that that's also something that you are really proud of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think um, this, this is an interesting thing because I often tend toward talking about the process of bettering and improving the work. Um, and then, you know, folks like you will come in and say, yeah, but there's this whole group of people who won't even begin to ship because of the fear that it's not good enough. And I don't think about that enough. I'm not a professional writing coach. I I don't have to, you know what I mean? I'm only sharing my experiences, but there's a few things that I think about here that might be helpful. And you call it the first 10 and last 10%. Another way to think of it is you're not writing one article. You're like writing five. You're going to write the first draft and that's going to be the crappy thing that isn't very good, but at least get your ideas out. And then the second article you write is an improvement on that. And the third one is done in open source format with other people. And, but that doesn't actually, sometimes it doesn't even get it any closer to done. Um, All that's happened is you've gotten great ideas from others that now have to be incorporated into like (laughs) the next shitty draft. You know what I mean? So you're like, okay, I did the shitty first draft. Mm -hmm. Then I made it better with the second article I wrote. Um, Then the third article incorporated others, but that made it worse. Now it's just like a patchwork quilt of various styles (laughs) and ideas. Crap, 
did we just go backwards? And then article four is to make that congruent and, you know, make it all fit. And then article five is to make it make sense and be well-written grammatically and tell the story and make you feel the things you're supposed to feel. And then maybe article six is, you know, where an editor comes or a friend or whatever and helps really polish it and say, oh, well, I didn't get that, right? So now no one's contributing new ideas, but they're helping you clarify and making sure it lands. Um, you know, a lot of people, yourself included, have been through my Think Aloud process where I, you know, I'm like, hey, this isn't, you know, I'm going to send you a Google document and this isn't where you rewrite the thing for me. This isn't even where you check my grammar. I'm not asking you to be editor. What you're going to do here is read it and tell me what you feel as you do it. And you're just going to put drop notes in the margin free form. If something sounds dumb, just say, sounds dumb. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. This joke wasn't funny. Ooh, I love this. You know, that's what the thing is. But that's article six. You know what I mm -hmm. mean? And so it's like you're writing six articles to do one. And um, it may be sound intimidating, but each lift is a little bit less heavy. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. Like all you have to do with article one is get stuff out of your head onto page and make it as shitty as you can. You know, that's uh -huh. lift one. That's not that heavy. Uh, lift two is, okay, now I do some grammar stuff. Well, that's not that heavy because I got words on the page already. Um, the, the I, I was just thinking about this recently because, you know, I coach a um, bunch of youth sports now, soccer, flag football, and this is like my fourth season of coaching flag football. And uh, we have two boys who play. So I usually coach both their teams. And, you know, we have a playbook, right? So it's a little binder that I have with uh, like nine plays on each page. And they're like color coordinated. Here's who goes where and stuff. And, you know, season one, the first playbook was the best one I could come up with at the time. Mm -hmm. having had some football experience, but never coached this age group before. Mm -hmm. And um, not knowing how, uh, I thought there were some brilliant plays in here, but not knowing how that it would interface with real boys on a real yeah. football field against real opponents, right? So then we went out and did it. And week one, I was like, ooh, okay. Some of these worked pretty good, but if I tweak this, it would be better. So I'm now on playbook 13. You know, and every week is just an improvement based on interfacing with the real world. Um, so, you know, uh, you could use the same thing I said earlier. It's like an open source project, right? And now mm -hmm. our boys are invested enough that where they help me co-create plays. Well, dad, this is what it looks like on the field, right? So now we, and, and then we tried in practice and I asked the boys, how can we make this better? Um, so it becomes like an open source project if iteratively making a thing better right but we had to still play in that first game right mm -hmm. so yeah. whether yeah. the playbook was good enough or not we had to play and now we have a playbook and you know we've won the last three um regional championships so we're getting good at this you know right. we're plus oneing and plus tening it so i think about that too with the writing process, it's the same to me, right? Like, what's the best thing I can do myself now? Okay, then let's put it out into the world and collaboratively make it better. And then, you know, now I, I can't say whether at what stage you should sell the article or, you know what I mean, whatever uh -huh. the case may be. But I can say that this feels like uh, close to the process of the best people I've seen.
you know, Mm -hmm. which is there's a multi-step process that isn't done alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that playbook metaphor because as you said, we still had to play, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, Yep. And you wouldn't have gotten to this point of even figuring out that process or having a team or working with the people that you have had you and Phil not started in the first place, you know, had Phil not come into the picture and said, you got to have your own platform, your own place for doing this. And for you and he, you know, working on those pieces together and publishing and building that up. We've talked a lot about the the writing process, but before we wrap up, I, there is... One thing I really wanted also to address, which is the thinking time. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about making the writing better. You've dedicated your career to really doing what you started to do back in those stacks in the library of, you know, of reading something and then thinking about it. How can I make this applicable? Or what would, you know, what would this look like in practice? Or and looking at and thinking about those ideas over the years and including ideas that you've also probably since changed your mind about or that where the research mm-hmm. has changed. So there would be maybe kind of coming back to things and evolving them. And in your book, Changemaker, you also do, um, you talk about this, you talk about setting aside time each week just to think, which is almost mm-hmm. unheard of or feels like <laughs> an indulgence in today's society where there's also feel so much pressure on on doing and producing and, and putting stuff out more. Can you tell me a bit about, I don't know, your own sort of philosophy about thinking time and how that served you over the years? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the most evolved version of that, which took the whole career, is, you know, where I would just set aside a day, a week to do that, you know? thinking, whatever I call it, thinking day, you know, my schedule uh, towards the end of my full-time work at PN would be um, Monday was creation time. So I would write a thing, record a thing, whatever, you know, if I had to go into a studio and do a video, um, Wednesday was creation day, uh, Tuesday and Thursday were meeting days. So it was, you know, my least favorite days of the week. I hated Tuesdays and Thursdays, but they were a necessary evil. So I would just stack the day with all the meetings so that I didn't have to ever meet with anyone on Mondays or Tuesdays or Fridays, which were thinking days. And, uh, that was the day where I created nothing. Like there was no pressure to write a thing, record a thing, whatever. Um, and I didn't have to take a meeting. Now those days, like Often, maybe people wouldn't even know the difference between a thinking day. So it's not mm-hmm. sitting quietly in your office for eight hours thinking, right? That's, <laughs> that is not an active enough process, at least for me, you know, um, my thinking days, they were, they were active processes. It was like, what, what do I need to solve that I can't just barrel through, you know? Uh, it could be a work problem. It could be a personal problem. It could be um, an idea, or it could be thinking about the future, or you know, what are the next four chess moves for me professionally, personally, and then figuring out how to answer the questions that I have around that. So, a thinking day could be typing on Google and asking Google questions. It could be reading research or whatever and taking notes on it. It could be 
uh, on the phone. Like I could be talking with experts in this area and having them help me figure out how to solve these problems or overcome challenges or seize opportunities. But it was always this time set aside to say like, what's the most important thing I ought to be thinking about next? And then how do I like proactively figure out answers to the questions that come up for me when I do that? Um, and again, someone will walk in and be like, oh, this is your thinking day. Why were you on the phone all day? Well, because I was picking the brain of experts and really smart people. Um, well, you look like you were typing all day. Oh yeah, I was searching Google. It looked like you were writing an article in your notebook. Now I was like making notes on the stuff that I was reading. But that was like the most evolved form of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, when I was younger and had more time and less like schedule demands and stuff, um, it came a little bit more organically or randomly you know, in my mm-hmm. life. You know, I remember um, when I first went away to university, I was 21. I started a bit later and um, I uh, was maybe like the first month of school. I had gotten into a couple of books that I was really interested in, intrigued by whatever immersed in. And, um, and I just didn't go to class for like, or leave my apartment really for like a whole week. And like my friends were like knocking on the door, like (laughs) sniffing for dead body smell or whatever. (laughs) And, um, I just took a week to read and think about the things that like, um, and you know, for those curious, it, you know, I was 21 and I had just been exposed to Ayn Rand's writing uh-huh. and I was like really fascinated by this, uh, set of ideas that she was proposing and, um, but like kind of curious and skeptical about them. And so I was like, I was just in this rabbit hole of like reading everything I could from her and then reading all the counterpoints to what she was talking about and, where is she crazy and who thinks she's an idiot and uh poser and whatever else. And I, I just like disappeared for a week to try and figure out how to make sense of what was happening here, you know? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that was like how thinking came up for me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, often I think really avid readers find a way to do their thinking in the context of reading. Um, you know, so you'll just like slow cook a book and you'll be sitting there with it open. But for 10, 15, 20 minute stretches, you're just like lost in thought about what you just read or how that relates to the other things that you read Mm -hmm. that remind you of this. Mm -hmm. And so you'll find those snatches of time, you know, so I I, I feel Mm -hmm. like readers often find their thinking time like in and around their reading, you know? Right. Yeah. I often have have to have my like a, a journal or a notebook or something next to me depending on what it is that i'm reading because or even Mm. or even my computer because sometimes i think oh i actually need to write like now i Mm -hmm. i have like i have five Mm -hmm. new ideas or a bunch of thoughts and i have to start getting that down and in fact i will um schedule time for certain kinds of books where i know that's going to happen so i'm like Mm -hmm. if i only have just two minutes and genuinely just want to read i'm like no this has to be my Fiction, although it can even happen with with fiction as a storyteller, yeah. I'm always looking. I'm always kind of thinking about storytelling, uh, even when I'm immersed in story. Yes, but, totally. 
Yeah, I can yeah. kind of set aside almost like I know this book is going to get my brain going, so I I need to be prepared for that. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I I actually feel like for me personally and others have described this as well, there's a thing that happens when I read and I I prefer reading fiction um that uh unlocks a part of my brain that gets me access to more ideas opens me up to better conversations with mm-hmm. others um makes me a better conversationalist myself mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to, anything to do with the story that i just read mm-hmm. you know what i mean it's not like oh i read this thing and i'm going to go say facts from this story in my next conversation it's fully unrelated mm-hmm. it's just like it does something to my brain and then when i'm reading regularly and i go out in public space I am a better conversationalist and mm-hmm. I see and seize more ideas and uh, keeps me more open and curious. And uh, so for me, part of the process was also reading. So some of my thinking mm-hmm. days would be reading as well. Like mm-hmm. hey, I'm going to take an hour and read a thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that is, you know, and again, I, I don't, that's just me describing my experience. So mm-hmm. uh uh, the prescription isn't go read fiction so you can be a better thinker or whatever. Um, <laughs> it may it may work for some people. I mean, I'm a champion <sighs> of that. I, I I often come back to, you know, people will ask me about how to be a better writer. And I, I'm like, okay, are you reading regularly and are you writing regularly? And mm-hmm. also you might say, are you publishing or sharing your work? Kind of going back to that bit about mm-hmm. feedback. Is somebody else's eyes getting on this? But the, you know, it's a bit like nutrition too. I mean, it's those, those core basics. We can talk about these finer details of supplementation or what have you, but if you're not kind of just eating your protein and vegetables, you don't have the basics. And I truly believe if you want to be a thought leader, if you want to have ideas that are well expressed and well thought out and make a difference, I mean, we got to think. And we got to look at other people's ideas and we have to practice expressing, developing them and expressing our own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And then maybe get some coaching along the way. You know, I was thinking about this again in the context of youth sport because I'm so immersed in it now. But, you know, if my boys were like, dad, how do I become a better soccer player? Like, there's a There's a recipe for that. You know, mm-hmm. like you might not be a professional soccer player, but you get better fastest by regular intentional practice mm-hmm. under the watch of an excellent collaborative coach. Mm-hmm. That's the fastest way, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, I coach a travel team, uh, our 11 year olds uh, travel team. And um, there's a bunch of boys that I see playing in house league, which is like less competitive or whatever. And there's less coaching and less practice and everything. And the house league boys only get better insofar as they grew physically from one year to the next, right? Mm -hmm. So if you got Mm -hmm. taller and faster and stronger, then maybe you got to be a better soccer player. But if you didn't, you're probably no better next year. Um, But the travel boys get better. Um, Mm -hmm. And the reason is they practice more. They uh, have high level, high quality coaching, 
and they're around a community of excellence, right? They're playing games against better players than them. They are um, playing with excellent players around them. Um, I think everyone would agree that has maybe sport background or whatever, mm-hmm. that, oh yeah, that's how you get better. But maybe sport isn't your thing and maybe it's academics or whatever. How do you get better at research or any other thing? Everyone would agree, oh yeah, yeah that's the formula. You practice regularly with the oversight of a great coach Mm -hmm. um, and around great people. Mm -hmm. So then um, how could writing be any different? Yeah. How could communication (laughs) of ideas be any different? It's not. So how can you engineer that? I think the reason, I don't know, I'm not the pro here, but I can see how it would feel different, right? Mm -hmm. Because because mm-hmm. reading and writing feels like like a much more personal activity. Mm-hmm. And there's no like reading and writing Olympics that I know about or that, you know what I mean? It's not on TV, you know, it's not like sort of a, yeah. a celebrated endeavor where people are visibly striving to be better. But that's what the people, that's what people are asking you all the time, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're responding to questions and your, you know, newsletters and blog posts all speak to this very thing over and over again in a hundred different ways. How do I get better at this thing? Mm -hmm. The answer is like, you get better at everything else. You got to practice regularly under Mm -hmm. the supervision of a great coach, um, be around people who are good at it. Now you might not be a part of the inklings or, you know, a celebrated literary tradition sitting (laughs) in a cafe in France or whatever. Right. Um, but uh, you can surround yourself with great writers by reading them. You know, that's mm-hmm. a life hack. Um, but it, it would also be cool if this was really important to you to find some writers in your area and hang out with them if you can. You know, that's yeah. that's what you know, Hemingway and um, C.S. Lewis and these people were famously doing. I don't think it's an accident that C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, all these folks were just hanging out, you know what I mean, and sharing ideas. Um so, yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. That that feels like the highest hurdle maybe, and it's not even as required. I mean, these were professionals who were writing sort of world-changing literature. But um, the other steps before it around practice and, and, you know, coaching, if you want to call it that, uh, mm-hmm. are relevant. Yeah, and, you know, and thank you for saying that and kind of pointing it back to to what I do also because – I I think, you know, it's not just the writing process. I think people often look at it as like, well, I'm not the best with words or I'm not the best speller or like, I, I don't really know grammar or what have you. But it's, I think that truthfully, those things are easy to solve because you can get somebody to proofread your work. Um, but it's sort of more the 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 practice to me of being able to, to think and sort of process and synthesize ideas on a regular basis and translate that somehow into some form of written communication. Maybe it's an e-newsletter or a blog or articles or something cumulative like a book. Mm-hmm. And now how do I do that and actually bring this into my life so that I can do it consistently and like identify stories, understand, you know, know what, what things to talk about and and how. And so that's often what I do with my clients and what um, 
satisfies me maybe the most is not even seeing them grow as writers, which is awesome. Like I love to see people improve their own writing and start to write Mm -hmm. naturally. And that's really cool. But what really excites me is when they start going, oh yeah, here I have a story idea. They recognize that something that happened in their life, maybe it's even a simple thing, can be used as a great um, metaphor, like the way that you told the playbook story, right? So Mm. if we were working together, maybe I'd be chatting with you or talking with you about what's going on in your life. And, you know, that kind of, that might've come up about coaching. It would be like, great, that's a story idea. That could be an e-newsletter right there. Like, you know, let's, Mm -hmm. if we want to talk about say coaching or skill building, like let's use that as an example. And so to me, when I see people progress to this point, through practice and of course, like coaching and, and support and our work together where they start going, ah, got it. I'm thinking like a storyteller now. I'm understanding mm-hmm. how I can connect the dots of my life's experiences, the, the things I'm reading, the things I'm encountering and understand this is something that can be expressed in a way that's going to make a difference to other people and get a point across. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. And that reminds me of something I wanted to say earlier too, which is, you know, you were sort of talking about the distinction between and the sort of co-importance of writing and thinking. And uh, that that's uh, like, this is what I've just often said, because people have often asked me how to be a good writer. And I'm like, I have no advice because I don't think I'm a good writer. Um, <laughs> I, I think I'm a very good thinker. And so that's, what I rely on in terms of strength, you know, I'm like, I don't know that I can craft the best sentences, but I can craft passable sentences to support ideas that you, that that would be worth reading or mm-hmm. listening to or watching. So that's what I've leaned on, you know? And, and I think if we're talking about thought leadership, that's what thought leaders to rely on Mm -hmm. you know i have a friend who's a really great writer and has been doing it a long time he's a professional writer and he was taking a writing workshop and one of his mentors in the workshop was like um your line by line writing is a dream but your ideas need work right so that was the description Mm -hmm. of the opposite of what i've relied on he mm-hmm. has relied on line by line writing. He's perfected. He is a beautiful writer. His sentences just feel good to read, mm-hmm. right? They, at times they're warm blankets, at other times they're a punch in the face. But sometimes when you leave his piece, you haven't learned anything. You you haven't been moved or um, caused to change or adopted a new idea or anything. Mm-hmm. So he's the one end of the spectrum. Phenomenal writer needs work on thinking, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I'm on the other end of the spectrum, like editors and Cam's been one of them over the years and they have lots of feedback for me on how to say things better. But uh, I think generally they'd accept that what I was writing about was worth writing about. You know, the, the thinking is worth it. It's worth working with me or doing the extra work and, and working with me when I'm not, when I'm a pain in the butt, um, because the ideas are worth it. Right. So that's Mm -hmm. what I think a lot of folks should think about, especially in the thought leadership space. Like you don't have to get great at this part, the writing part, but if you don't get great at like clear, lucid thinking, right. At idea generation at, you know, pulling 
stories out of the universe, you know, that are already mm-hmm. there waiting for you, um, then it doesn't matter how good you get at writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it, it, That'll be a bunch of effort wasted. Um, so that's just how, I mean, that's how I've conceptualized this. Um, probably in my younger days, I thought like, oh, uh, man, it would be awesome if I could write like Fitzgerald or someone. But um, then I just realized, well, you know what, why don't I just lean into my strengths? I always have stuff to think about and talk about. Mm -hmm. So let me just like double down on curiosity and clarity. And like you said, like analogy, that's one of my favorite. I mean, I've done it a lot Mm -hmm. in just this time together. My mind just goes, what's that like? That thing we're talking about, what else is that like? And I do that all day long. And so whether I'm teaching our kids or talking to our kids or, you know, talking in sport or talking about work, uh, you know, sometimes I'm like, God, do people get, you know, I'm doing a podcast interview. Are people annoyed that I'm doing all these kids stories or sports stories or whatever? (laughs) I'm like, I don't care. I can't do it any other way, you know, (laughs) but that's like a constant practice of mine. What's this like? You know, what else is this like? And that's the searching for analogies and metaphors and things like that. This is kind of like that. And if you've experienced that before, but not this, I can get you to figure out what this is about, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's Mm -hmm. to me thinking again, right? So that's, that's what I really put a high premium on in, in this kind of work, right? I, I wouldn't cut it as a fiction writer, but I didn't sign up for that. I signed up for this and this is where I put the premium here. Yeah, yeah, I and that's a great prompt about what is this like as a, as an analogy, and I mean to me, I I think as well in this kind of space too that you know there is a difference between this and and fiction, but in this kind mm-hmm. of nonfiction thought leadership space, to me, writing and thinking are the same, mm-hmm. um, because a huge also you know to me the editing process is um, a big part of it is actually let's get more clarity on what that idea is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, like you referenced our work together and I would believe, yes, there's an, a, there's a good idea here. There is an idea worth sharing here. And, and rarely, truthfully, in working with my clients, do I feel like the idea isn't worth it. It's just finding mm-hmm. the right time and space. But, but where we need to put the time and attention is actually in Let's go deeper into it. What do you mm-hmm. really mean? What do you, what are you actually trying to say? What, why are we saying this? Let's look at it from some different angles. Let's, let's really refine it. And so I, I do agree that I think often when people feel they're, they're struggling with their writing, um, actually what, what's missing is not uh, the craft. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just the thought. And, and this is where, you know, partnership and, and collaboration is useful as well. I mean, I worked with my husband uh, a few years ago as he applied to um, a small um, master's degree program and only four people would get in and you had to have a, like a written application as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, we're going to, we're going to get this. <laughs> and so it was such a fascinating process too, at a more kind of personal level of like, really understanding, getting to understand him better, his perspective, mm-hmm. what, like who he was and and how he was brought here. And, and 
we worked together a bit on his um on his the written component of his thesis as well and and it was so cool because i saw him through that process too mm-hmm. understand himself better like ah yep. this is my perspective this is why i'm pursuing this um mm-hmm. and that to me is what i really i love about what i do and at the heart i feel of thought le- leadership and what i would love to encourage more people to spend that time on, you know, find your people to, to wrestle with and and collaborate on, but also even just within yourself to spend that time reflecting and, and challenging those ideas and and Mm -hmm. asking yourself some of these, these questions, because if you can evolve them and communicate them to that point that other people get it, that's where you have something that can be really meaningful. Totally. Yeah. And that, that story with uh, your husband is fun because uh, I just did that this weekend. So our oldest daughter's 12. She had her friend sleep over and they were sitting around the dining room table. Um, I heard them like noodling over something, words, you know, and the yeah. one girl's typing, the other girl's talking. And I was like, hey, what are you two up to? And they're like, dad, great. We're glad you're here. You got to help us with something. <laughs> and I was like, okay, what is it? And I was like, well, my friend here is running for treasurer of student body council. And she has to give a speech this week on it. Um, can you listen to it and uh, and help us make it better? And, you know, I was like, you know, being like trying to be cool about it, you know, like being like not too uh, hyper dad, you know. <laughs> but I was like, all oh, this is, girls, you don't even know what, you're, what you just asked for, what you're about to get into, right? I'm going to like we're going to make you treasurer of, you know, the school. And uh, then next you're running for office for Canada. Um, (laughs) But, but that was the exact, so I'm like, tell me what you got. And I was like, okay, there's some good bones here, but there's a lot of time wasted on talking about nothing. And here's what we need, you know? And, and there, it was interesting because we were at it for about 20 minutes and it was getting better every minute. Right. And then all of a sudden I was like, which one of you two girls tell me what a treasurer actually does? And they really struggled with that. And I was like, okay, so you got to think about this. Will mm-hmm. anyone else in your class know what a treasurer is? And they're like, oh, probably not. And I was like, well, then why don't we say that? Hi, my name is so-and-so, and I'm running for treasurer of the student body. For those of you who don't know, this is what a treasurer is. You know, and like starting back at those basics. And now once you tell everyone what it is, you can sell yourself and your skills as to why you would be a great treasurer. You know, so we ended up with this really cool thing that we're all like high-fiving and super proud of. And I was got to be the cool dad for the day or whatever. Um, but it's just one of my favorite things too, because we walked away with this like exercise in self-discovery, in mm. communication, like I gave them some tools that hopefully they'll use in the future because they're gonna have to do more stuff like this mm-hmm. and uh and that's one of the things i love about what you do too is like a lot of it is like drills and tools and writing prompts and things like that and again i draw it back to every other thing that you're trying to learn in life right like if you need work on passing in soccer you find a coach who gives you 10 or 12 drills that help you be better at passing right so the same is true of like communication and thought and writing if you don't have a set of drills to practice or thinking prompts right intentions to set when you go to do those drills 
again, how could you possibly get better? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like being like, okay, I'm going to show up at the field with a soccer ball and try and get better. This is not going to happen, at <laughs> least in a reliable way and like the time frame you want it to happen in. Right. <laughs> And that's why we talk about coaching, not just because like there's magic in a person, but because they like know what drills to practice and what intention to set. And then they're the objective eye to tell you if you're actually doing it right, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like, you know, for anyone out there who's thinking about this and working on the practice or even looking for a good coach, you know, it's like, are there drills and practices and prompts and um, intentions? that you can set up to do this, you know, and and Mm, that's what I spent a lot of time coming up with in my precision nutrition work over the years Mm -hmm. or my change maker work. It's like, okay, good. You want to figure it. We've got to figure out your purpose, but we're not going to figure it out by just sitting in a room saying, what's my purpose? What's my purpose? What's my purpose? Right. I got to ask you some questions and then you got to think of things and then you got to pit them against each other. And then you got to ask people to tell you about yourself. And then we do this thing. You know, there's a, yeah. there's an ex- set of exercises for this, not just a, I want to get better at the thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I love all the, like the sort of tools and, and templates and stuff that you provide and, and, uh, in, in that book and also in general, I, I love that kind of stuff. So, um, we're just about out of time. Um, uh, would you be up for a, a super short lightning round of just- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Favorite food. <laughs> Nothing too crazy, I promise. Best movie line. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. What was your favorite book as a kid? Um, yeah, I mean, I think my most, like my favorite book ever, and I read it every year or two, is The Great Gatsby. Um, I absolutely love the writing. I think it's super enchanting and uh, the way that uh, Fitzgerald crafted the sentences and the story is uh, beautiful and remarkable to me. Um, So that's just a book that I, uh, it's pleasurable, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but my most formative books came within a year of each other. And it was Ayn Rand's like Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, Mm -hmm. followed by um, John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath and East of Eden. And the, there's a whole thing here. Like Ayn Rand was like this rugged individualist, uh, escaped communism as a young girl and, and came to America and fell in love with capitalism and, you know, what would be sort of far right ideas nowadays, mm-hmm. um, which I don't identify with. Um, but there was something in that as a young 20 something that I was like, Oh, hell yeah. You know what I mean? Just <laughs> like, as you're trying to find your own way, you're like yeah. leaving the nest. Um, but then uh, the counterpoint of like Steinbeck's humanism and, you know, showing like really vivid stories of people who couldn't pull themselves up by their bootstraps, you know what I mean? And not as an intellectual exercise, but the real documentation of people during the Dust Bowl and times like that. Um, just those those four books essentially read in the same year really shaped my worldview in like the most powerful way and still stick with me today. So really it's sort of Great Gatsby as my you know pleasure and delight favorite book. And those books are just so powerful and profound in their ideas 
and then have figuring out how to reconcile them really changed my life. If you were to write another book, what would it be about? Oh, geez. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I don't think I want to write another book. <laughs> One um, was enough. Well, you know what? The, part of it is like, I feel really done, you know, like I feel really satisfied in those certain domains, like my precision nutrition work. I'm like, I accomplished everything I ever wanted to as a young, ambitious person. And I'm, and it's, I'm sated, you know? And then in terms of writing the book, I'm, you know, change maker, my last book, I feel sated there too. You know, people tell me all the time, like, oh, we just homeschooled our kids for four years. And people say I'm like a good youth coach or whatever. You should write about these things. And, um, I'm at this stage in my life where I feel like um, that all feels so self-aggrandizing to me now, you know, and this isn't an accusational thing toward anyone else who wants to share their knowledge, but I'm just like, I don't know, maybe I can just spend the rest of my life enjoying uh, getting better at stuff without feeling the impulse to teach others about it because something changes in the process and 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 I think this is back to the social media conversation earlier. I think something changes in the process of a life when you are constantly thinking about how to document it uh, or you know make it yeah. interesting or teach from it. Uh, certainly, my life was that way as a precision nutrition you know mm-hmm. owner, leader, worker, um, where I like just e- every part of my day had some relationship to the work that I was doing, which was great, you know, then, uh, now I'm just like, Hey, what if I did stuff and mm-hmm. I didn't have to tell anyone about it mm-hmm. or teach anyone about it or any of that. So I'm really relishing in that space right now. I mean, again, I, I feel like I have some things maybe positive to share about coaching kids or teaching kids or whatever the case may be. But, um, in some ways I don't want the idea that I might write about it one day to, I'll use this word, maybe it's a little heavy handed, like corrupt my life. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm keeping <laughs> them, I'm keeping them separate for now. <laughs> Those words just hang in the air, <laughs> but I, I, that that's wonderful. And um, yeah, I think there's something really beautiful about that as well. Okay, one last question. Um, what is something that you're still curious about? Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, there's loads of things. I mean, the thing that I'm really curious about and thinking about a lot now is um, like uh, it's uh, the, the global sort of idea here, and it's got all these layers to it in my mind, is just like, like the choices we make in our lives. Um, like, what do they mean? And um, so, for example, I have this theory that I'm, well, whatever, it's not theory. It's just this, this phrase that keeps going on and on in my mind lately. And it's just this idea that we are, like, the stuff that we choose to do, all of it, work, playing video games, watching something on Netflix, going out for coffee with a friend, going for a run, going skydiving, volunteering at the shelter. They're all stuff we're doing to pass the time while we're waiting to die. 
you know, like, like all of us on some level realize that mm-hmm. we're just here for some hours, you know, and there's yeah. a lot of them, you know, if we're lucky, I guess yeah. there's a lot of hours to pass, you know, like, and I can only sleep a few of them every day. I gotta be awake for some, you know? And then it's like, what am I going to do with the time? Yeah. Right. And what does it mean? And I love extrapolating out of the whole oh, purpose and mission and, you know, all this kind of stuff um, for some minutes every day to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's all how you're thinking when you're inside the matrix of trying to spend your hours. But I think it's still important to recognize like at the same time, we're just trying to spend hours until we die. And um, I don't know, it, it's, I'm, I'm curious about this a lot, you know, about mm-hmm. how people choose to spend their time, about how people recognize these choices in the context of that. Um, and it's, it, I mean, it's been helping me a lot to um, like back away from all this, like clutching onto the virtue of a life well-lived narratives. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, because I still think we should, you know, whatever should, even this idea, like I was even about to say the thing that needs to get corrected in my mind, right? Oh, we should do virtuous things with our time. And, but, but really is that, the imperative right now to mm-hmm. do virtuous things um or is it generally okay to like give people a break mm-hmm. and let them choose the hours how they're going to spend the hours until they die however the fuck they want you know <laughs> yeah. what i mean <laughs> yeah. as long as it yeah. doesn't infringe on the rights and things yeah. of other people you know what i mean yeah um like that's been a, it's it's really curious to me especially as like someone high like high achieving throughout a lot of my life and uh you know someone who preached the virtues of taking care of your body and all these kind of things it's just like you know at a certain point like can we question all of that narrative Mm -hmm. without like tearing the whole universe out from its foundation fabric of society exactly uh but still asking like hey is it okay if we just let people we're just all doing the same project at some level. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? We're just trying to figure out how to spend our time until we die. Um, all right, cool. Can can we then accept all the different ways that people might choose to spend it within some boundaries of, you know, social collaboration? Mm-hmm. So that's the thing I'm really curious about lately and exploring quite a lot in my life and others. And uh, so that's what I'm thinking about. That's wonderful. That's something I think a lot about too, to be honest, uh, also as kind of a a person who's sort of driven around, you know, just doing things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the the pandemic was challenging in that respect and and maybe something good that came out of it for me was also forcing me to grapple with that a bit, you know, is it okay mm-hmm. if I'm just here doing a puzzle or working in my garden or reading a book and mm-hmm. not um not doing all of the things all of the time, all of the remarkable things or all of the, you know, success things or, or what have you. Or having to like define my life by the certain things that are like whatever progress oriented. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that, that's a thing I've talked a lot about to various degrees of interest with other people, you know, that idea, like it feels to me like this idea that we always have to be growing, you know, Mm -hmm. even Carol Dweck and growth mindset stuff. 
mm-hmm. is really fetishized nowadays, you know, and it seems to me that historically that wasn't always the case. It wasn't always yeah. necessary for a good life to be lived uh, with the highest virtue growth. Yeah. You There's know? a ton of literature on this too. Yeah. <laughs> It'd probably be a whole other conversation, but yeah, that's something I've explored um, through reading and trying to hear different points of view that maybe challenge the, the narrative that is so driven around optimization and mm-hmm. productivity and, and so on. But personally, I have found that ultimately the thing I have to grapple with on it most is, is myself and my kind of my own mm-hmm. beliefs. And if I can develop more of that comfort with that myself, then that can. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And as I've, and, and the nice side effect of that, because ultimately like, yeah, I start all this with myself at the center is, um, you know, like this, uh, like, uh, ever expanding tolerance for how I see other people's lives, you know what I mean? Okay. Which is the benefit that I've gotten out of it. I'm like, Oh, I, I can really quickly remind myself that Oh wait, why? Like why? Why mm-hmm. am I now foisted not only on myself but on you, other person <laughs> yeah. in the world? You know that you ought to be living your life some way before you die. Uh, shame on me. Let's get out of that. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And maybe it's okay that you're up to whatever you're up to. And you know we've got four children, so I think I have to learn to be okay with that too, with them. You know, and the choices that they make as they grow older for career and partner and all that kind of stuff and mm-hmm. how they spend their time before they die. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for this, JB. Before we go, um, can you share where can people find you and is there anything that you want to promote? Yeah, no, I'm mostly hiding from people nowadays <laughs> uh, to maximize my time with my family. But yeah, I mean, you know, some of these things that we've talked about are explored in my Changemaker book, which, you know, listeners can helped with. And um, yeah, I mean, that's really it. You know, I have a well, johnbrody.com website, which talks about the stuff I've done in my career. And you can jump off and find Precision Nutrition and Changemaker and my writings and all from there. Um, but yeah, mostly I'm just quiet. You know, I've I've uh, taken myself off Facebook completely. I have um, Instagram is the next one. I have queued up posts until the end of this year, and then I'm going to stop posting on Instagram. So yeah, I'm, I'm becoming scarce uh, and dis- disappearing off the grid of uh, public social media life. Uh, so yeah, but johnbrody.com will be there and, and jumping off for the things that I've been working on. Wonderful. That's great. Well, thank you again. It's been such a pleasure getting to have this conversation with you. Yeah, it was fun, Cam. Great questions. Thank you. You took me on a nice trip down memory lane for twice in two weeks because we had a different interview recently, (laughs) folks, uh, on a different topic that uh, I got to reminisce a little bit about too there. And so some of this stuff I haven't really talked about out loud in a really long time. So it was really fun. Thanks, Cam. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Storytelling with Heart podcast. Want to turn your thoughts into leadership and your ideas into words that make a difference? Find me and discover more free resources at www.camilledeputter.com. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe to my email newsletter where I share stories, free tools, and other storytelling guidance. And never forget, your story matters. Your story matters.